Hello, my name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions. And I'm Proven Paradox, a guy with a lot of questions. And you're listening to Bright on Buddhism, a podcast where we discuss East Asian Buddhism, answering listener-submitted questions from listeners just like you, and introducing concepts of Buddhism that you may or may not be familiar with in a casual, conversational setting. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Bright on Buddhism. This week, we have our very first guest appearance, my friend and colleague Turner Reeves. He's a specialist of Chinese Yogacara Buddhism, and we're going to discuss some of the details about what his research goes on with and what the subject matter is and how it factors into his own life in some ways. Turner, would you like to introduce yourself? Hey, thanks, Nick. Thanks, Dr. Amion. My name is Turner Reeves, uh, master's student studying uh, the Chinese Yogacara, especially Swantong and uh, the Fashan School. Yeah, excited to be here. Very cool. Thanks for coming yeah. on. I'm looking forward to this. So our first question for you is, um, what is the history slash the origins of the Yogacara School of Buddhism? Yeah, I wanted to speak a little bit about um, the origins of the school. Uh, a lot of, like a lot of things with Buddhism, uh, there's a mythic kind of traditional account, and then uh, there are some things that we can tell from the text history. Uh, so I'll start with kind of the, the mythic one, because uh, it's more of a real narrative. So the, the story goes that we have two half-brothers living in Gandhara. Uh, this is the area uh, in Kashmir on, the, on today in the Pakistan side. Uh, but it's that contested area that this is about 4th century CE. Um, both of them uh, are half-brothers, uh, allegedly two different fathers and, and one mother. But again, traditional account can't be so sure about the historical details of lives, but um, the older brother is named Sangha and the younger brother is named Vasubandhu. Uh, and both of these guys, they go in to become Buddhist monks. Um, we, I've heard that you guys have gone through the Mahayana Hinayana distinction or um, early Buddhist versus Mahayana distinction. So um, today we'd say that these two belong to um early Buddhist or sectarian Buddhist uh, sects, um, although they are living relatively late. They're living after the kind of formation of the beginnings of the bubblings of Madhyamaka. Um, so Asanga, he goes off to um, one kind of form of Buddhism uh, and uh, that we know a little bit less about. Um, uh, but then Vasubandhu, he goes off to the Sarvastivada. Uh, this is the teaching sarva, um, sarva asti. So sarva means everything. Asti means uh, is or exists. So um, he's part of this Buddhist teaching that teaches that um, everything exists in the present, the future, and the past. Um, and not in the same sense that uh, something exists now. You know, the past is still the past, but um, they have this belief that uh the nature of, of objects exists in the past and the future. Um, he has a really prolific life, actually, before he uh, turns to the Mahayana. He's writing these uh, huge tracts. Um, but eventually he gets dissatisfied, and he comes back to his hometown. It turns out that Asanga has also become dissatisfied, and he's turned to Mahayana. Um, we get this later biography of Asanga, and it says that... Uh, he travels all the way from uh, Kashmir to 
the city of Iodia, and he's studying and teaching outside Iodia um, in this place called the Mango Grove. And it said that during the day, people would come, listen to him, um, and at night he'd go to this grove and he'd meet with his teacher, Maitreya. Have you guys covered Maitreya in the podcast so far? We haven't done a, a deep dive on him, but we have mentioned that he is the, the Buddha of the future and mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. So uh, there's, there's this great debate. Um, some people say, well, he was going to this cave and he was meeting with a human teacher named Maitreya Nata. Um, but other people say that he's doing some sort of visualization practice and he's, he's going to Toshida Heaven to receive direct teachings from Maitreya. Um, I side with that side of things. The reason I do is because um, if we look at later figures from around uh, 600 um, or, or before um, in India, we can tell that they had this tradition of that it was Maitreya, that he was doing some sort of visualization practice. Um, and especially the uh, writer Stiramati, uh, which we may touch on in this episode, I'm not sure, um, claims that it's, it's Maitreya. So he's getting these direct teachings from Maitreya. That, that becomes the basis of the Yogacara. Um, one of the important things uh, that he gets from Maitreya is um, the Yogacara Shastra Bhumi. So this is the kind of founding constitution of the Yogacara school. Um, and then he brings us back up. Vasubandhu comes back to uh, his hometown um, and Asanga comes back and they, they talk and Asanga converts him over to the Mahayana. Uh, and both of them begin, well, Vasubandhu after that, Asanga has written everything he's really going to write, but Vasubandhu starts pumping out all of these super important documents. Um, one that we went over in, in the class, Nick and I, um, was the Trimsika. Uh, this is These are 30 verses that boil down the teaching of the Yogacara into its kind of most uh, tight form. You know, it says at least amount of words possible to get the whole vision. Um, but that continues on. Vasubhanu has some students. Um, Yogacara is, is definitely there um, in India, um, both in, in the north and in the south, but eventually it does get brought over to China. Um, the two major figures. Uh, the first time it gets brought over in about 500, and uh, that starts one lineage line, and then it gets brought over in about 600, and it starts a second lineage line. And that's where we really get a lot of information about the Yogacara that we can access today, because a lot of those Indian manuscripts we can't really access anymore. Um, so that's the the mythical narrative side of things. Um, the text history side of things shows that, well, the myth says that it starts in the fourth century. Um, and this is, it's this relatively late development. Uh, the texts somewhat uh, support that. They also somewhat don't because we know the Yogacara, like a lot of other Buddhist schools, takes a particular sutra to be the authoritative one. Um, and in this case, the Yogacara chooses the uh, Samdhinirmochana Sutra. So this is uh, the sutra that um, kind of unveils the secret teaching. Uh, and and it, like a lot of sutras, makes claims about itself being um, the authoritative teaching, right? Um, so we can tell from that uh, that its, its final form had to be around the 4th century because we have something attributed to a Sangha, and if he's a real historical person, uh, it's a commentary. So if he's a real historical person, and 
it must have existed then. Um, and it, it also, we have it, he has a relatively late developed form of the text with eight chapters. Um, but we can also tell that there might have been an initial stage in the first or second century um, CE that was mostly verses and a little bit of, of prose. And uh, so that early form still contains a lot of these ideas that would be central to the Yogacara. So it's, it's not just with these two figures. It's kind of this material has been swirling around for a long time. We also have another um, important sutra, which is not the definitive sutra, but gets really important in China and is important to the Yogacara, the Lakavatara Sutra. We could tell that that also probably 350, 400 exists in form. We, we have comparable to what we had today. So we haven't done a reading and discussion of the Lakavatara Sutra yet. Would you like to talk a little bit, just a little bit about what the central argument of that one is? Yeah. So Lakavatara Sutra, it's a, it's a fairly large sutra. Um, and like I said, it's a, it's a little bit uh, later than some other sutras, like the, the Lotus Sutra, first century. Um, it has these a lot of these like robust ideas from the Yogacara, um, but it also brings in uh, Tathagatagarbha thought, which you guys have covered on the on the podcast, right? Yeah, just for a reminder yes. for those who are listening, that is regarding the the Buddha nature or like the Buddha womb that we all carry within us, that part of us that is already enlightened or already a Buddha somehow that is realized through practice and study. Mm -hmm. So the Lakavatara Sutra, it identifies something that will, which you guys have covered in the podcast already, it identifies the alia as the most basic thing. It also says the alia um, is in some sense, not in the conventional sense, um, but is pure in the way that it, it exists. So it identifies that as the, uh, Although it is, it goes really out of its way to say there is no permanent Atman self underneath there. Um, but it's this marriage of uh, um, Yogacara and Tathagatagarbha thought, and it'll, be, it'll blow up in, in East Asia. It actually, uh, it's very be, important for Chan Buddhism. Yeah, absolutely. It's the, it's the original kind of sutra that the uh, Chan and Zen guys used as their uh, organizing principle, although then that would be taken over by the Diamond Sutra as quite a few people know. Docs, just for you, since uh, we're discussing this without having had it, had record, having recording our Yogacara episode, like regular episode yet, the alaya that he's referring to is the storehouse consciousness. So the Yogacara argues that um, that the way that karmic history like works is... Um, Experiences leave karmic traces that are stored in this uh, ah, alaya, okay. and they're stored there in the in the form of seeds called bijas. Um, and we'll discuss that more in depth whenever we do our regular episode about Yogacara. That'll be going up before Turner's episode. But just so that you knew, like what we're what's going on. <laughs> that's that's what he's mentioning so, about alaya. So alaya is kind of your karmic record that stays with you but past multiple lives essentially yes and the okay. way to achieve uh, the way to achieve buddhahood is to kind of dump it out so to speak turn it over gotcha. and dump out all of the karmic stuff by acting a karmically and purifying existing karma okay i get it cool yeah 
I think that's all I have really for the for the origins. I I do have some information here about um, it spread into East Asia, but maybe we can save that for a later point if you want to talk about East Asia once we get the model of the mind. Yeah, we'll get there in, yeah. in a moment. Let's do the model of the mind thing using this yeah. Aya concept. Yeah. So how does Yogacara understand the mind? Yeah. So the Yogacara, um, a lot. Of, there's been a lot of debate. Um, when when people first uh, started to study the Yogacara in the West, a lot of people identified it as a kind of idealism, um, which then that became... So idealism being the uh, idea that Everything that exists is mind, um, and that became a very unfashionable idea, and it still still say is very unfashionable to this day. Kind of as a a reaction against, I would say maybe even as an overcorrection. Um, I'm not saying that that Yogacara is idealism, um, but uh, it's also share some similarities. Um, so the the Yogacara has this four tiered. Uh, system i suppose of of the mind uh where you have the the foundational tiers and then you build up uh going towards the top and once we get all the way through the fourth tier then we have a conventional mind like a a human being or uh any other sentient being might have um the funny thing is is that uh they don't recognize the existence of uh dharmas or, or phenomenon outside uh, phenomena outside the mind um, or at least not the mind as such but they don't they well here's the place to start um, before we get into to naming all the all the tiers the uh, Yogacara they put forward this idea called Vijnapti Mantrata um, this means everything is Vijnapti or, or, or Vijnapti only uh, which this is a lot of Sanskrit isms. I'm not trying to like drown us in Sanskrit isms, um, but what it means is that uh, it's often rendered consciousness only, or uh, cognizing, cognitive framing only. Uh, so this gets to this really early Buddhist model that you kind of need to understand before you can understand the mind, which you guys have covered in this podcast, the five skandhas. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So these are kind of five types of existences or types of things in the world. Uh, one of them is is form, which is kind of, well, you know, we have the mic on the table, we have the table itself, you know, that's form. And the other four are all um, kinds of mental things, mental aggregates. Uh, the Yogacara identifies that there's one that, the, that you can build an entire system with that accounts for our everyday experience um, without using others. And that is Vijnana. So Vijnana is the consciousness thing. It's it's the conscious experience, maybe you could say. Um, it's not that they don't deny the existence of the others, but what we'll see as we go on, the, the Yogacara, what it does is it really doesn't, it never denies the existence of something else. It, you know, it's branching out of this other school, the, the everything exists school. Um, but it, what it always seeks to do is to clarify the mode in which something exists so what they say is we can build a system in which consciousness is the only thing that really exists and explain everything else as uh, existing as a secondary product of that consciousness cognizing so uh vijnana that 
when it's when a vij, when vijnana is cognizing, that's called vijnapti. So they're not even as we as we know, Buddhism is always kind of doing this. Don't reify anything. Don't make anything real. Um, so they don't even say vijnana is the thing because that would be kind of an object. They say vijnana doing vijnapti. That is what everything is. So they their view of the mind and their view of really everything in existence is that it is uh, this process of cognizing, interacting with itself uh, to build up the world of experience around us. Uh, should I go on to the to the tier of mind or any questions about that? Because that's a tricky bit. Yeah, so I think yeah. the biggest question that I have going in is um, does that, what is the difference between that and the conventional way of thinking everything is imaginary? That's, there's similarities there that I think um, might trick some of the listeners. I know yeah. I haven't had the class that, you know, the, yeah. the Yogacara doesn't mean everything is imaginary. And it doesn't mean solipsism. It doesn't mean idealism. Yeah, I was going to say, like, that sounds really close to solipsism. Yeah, I get that a lot um, when I talk to people about the Yogacara. Uh, and I find, I find a lot of this debate... Or not debate. Well, when people when people say that, I think there's there's this huge concern with solipsism, and there is actually a concern with solipsism in the tradition. Um, although you see now in like uh, 21st century scholarship, that's like a really hot topic. I don't really do that, um, but there's a lot of people who are saying, "Well, how do the yoga charts um, deal with other minds?" Um, so the way that they deal with other minds uh, is that. Uh, and also, well, I'll start with other minds and I'll go into the imaginary thing. The way they deal with other minds is that they say, well, uh, Vijnana is constantly doing Vijnapti. Vijnana is constantly cognizing things. Um, and Vijnana has the illusion that it actually cognizes external objects. But you can think of this as maybe if we do something totally different, a materialistic, um, view where we think of like atoms we can think of these vijnana as little cognizing atoms right they're not minds in and of themselves uh but they're more just consciousness consciousness um so the uh sandinamotrana sutra it says even though it seems like vijnana is cognizing other objects and if we take the vijnapti mantra to um stance it's cognizing other vijnana um, in reality, the Buddha says, no Vijnana cognizes any other Vijnana. Somehow we dug ourselves in a deeper hole. It's even more <laughs> solipsis. That, yeah, that, that sounds extremely solipsis. Yeah. So the way that they deal with the problem um, is to say, well, they have a couple of different uh, uh, strategies. One is they have the conventional truth ultimate truth distinction, um, which you see through all Buddhism outside of, you know, Mahayana. We should discuss that just a little bit because we haven't introduced that yet. Oh, you haven't? Yeah. Do you want to go ahead? Yeah, we haven't. Yeah. So um, conventional truth versus um, what you might call absolute truth in this setting. Um, Certain things because of emptiness are provisionally true. Um, Emptiness permits us to see relative continuity in things. For example, um, even though impermanence exists, the earth has existed for however many billion years and the universe has existed for however many tens of billions of years. But all of that is a very granular way of looking at things. And 
if we zoom out time-wise, we start to see like actually everything is vastly more impermanent than that. And even though something is in front of me right now, that's only provisionally there. It's only there temporarily to say, to use an impermanence terminology. But then absolute truth would be something that's not subject to that level of uh, variety when you zoom in and out temporarily or spatially. That would be something like emptiness. Emptiness, some argue, is not a thing itself. Um, and therefore, it's not subject to impermanence. And it's not subject to emptiness. <laughs> and it's not subject to suffering and not subject to... the. Another thing that would count for this is cessation or nirvana. Um, lots of other things fall under this category that we won't go into here. But those things, because they are the nature of something rather than something itself, they are not subject to this provisionality. And so they're thought of to be more like absolute truths. But still, there's a lot of debate as to what is um, provisional and what's not among the different schools of Buddhism. And Yogacara has a particular perspective on what is provisional and what's not. Mm. So, and I, I, the funny thing with Yogacara is that, you know, you can only kind of pick little pieces at a time. I cannot really speak totally and accurately to their uh, models of, of conventional versus ultimate truth because it's, it's multi-tiered and it's very complicated. There's a lot of levels and it's just, and people disagree on all of them. And yeah, this is, this is a very deep rabbit hole that, that would take, that would take up an entire scholar's life to really parse out. Yeah. But <laughs> it seems to be the norm for Buddhism. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, our, our advisor, um, said something along the lines of, uh, Buddhism is kind of like this door that you open innocently. Uh, it looks like there's only one door on the wall, and then you open it, and then you fall into what? What's that painting? Uh, what that artist with um, Escher? Yeah, Escher. It's like you, you fall, fall into Escher's painting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah absolutely. That's apt. Yeah. So to get back to we, we're like you point out. I think quite rightly, we're in a deep solipsist hole. Um, Vijnana cannot actually cognize Vijnana, but they wouldn't deny that we have everyday phenomenological experience, right? You know, you walk outside. The provisional truths. The provisional truths. The And in some sense, the, that vijnana that's cognizing, that consciousness has to be doing something to build up this world, right? Um, so in a provisional sense, vijnana does cognize uh, something else. It cognizes other vijnana in a absolute sense it doesn't it kind of does its own illusory thing and uh if you have enough vijnana together they make a conventional mind and then that gives a feedback saying aha i'm cognizing xyz um and in some sense the freedom um gotten by enlightenment is kind of understanding what vijnana and what vijnapti what consciousness and cognizing really are um, which is they are just what they are rather than um, being some sort of subject view and object process. Um, so that sounds like the important distinction here. Whenever the Buddha says um, Vijnana is not cognizing other Vijnanas anywhere, anytime, for any reason, that's not, it, it seems it's, it's a trap that we fall into thinking that's a deeper solipsistic hole. But really what the issue is, is... Um, is because of things, because of ultimate truth, emptiness, impermanence, and whatever, those things um, 
two Vijnanas cognizing each other is just a provisional experience. It's not, it's not like two substantial, permanent, existent things in the universe coming together and cognizing each other. Rather, it's two impermanent, non-substantial, empty things aggregating together in, in, in what you might call like a, um, a non-arising way. Mm. I would like to, and I think that's closer to the, to the ultimate truth. I think to pull it back to the conventional truth, if I said, think about it like, like atoms, you know, our kind oh, of, yeah. our naive understanding of materialism is that uh, if you take a collection of atoms and, and smoosh them together, they become an object, right? But then we, but then again, with that naive view, we also kind of view it as, um, well, atoms don't really touch, right? And we think of them as, as little marbles um, that are kind of touching and coming together, but they aren't really, there's nothing substantial there, right? Um, but yet still on the macroscopic level, there's an object there and we call it solid and we say, you know, atoms are touching to create this thing. It has form, it has shape, it has color, it has nature, mm, whatever. Yeah. Now, there, I think there still is another final solipsist anxiety here, um, which I, I want to address, which is, okay, so everything's Vijnana. I only have the Vijnana that are in my mind. Everything's consciousness. I only have access to my own consciousness. Uh, what does the Yogacara say? Because it seems in our, in our everyday experience, at least here in the West, where we kind of have this mind-body distinction, right, that, uh, well, minds can't really touch, can they? Like, I can't get into your thoughts or... Um, our thoughts can't really touch although sometimes you might have like a dream or something where you know you might have some sort of experience or we might take a psychedelic drug and have an experience but the the cartesian dualism prevents the coming together in any real way of two different minds with bodies you can't be two minds in one body or you know one mind in two bodies you are yeah you're kind of sealed in your own little sphere of mind according yeah. to the cartesian dualism so the right uh, so the Yogacara Buddhists, they're, they're not really bound by the same um, intellectual inheritance, right? Um, and they say uh, that what minds do is that they uh, cognize each other, although they cognize the unconscious parts of other minds. Um, and that also, there's a, there's a whole difficult... Um, debate here that uh i had to go down the rabbit hole of recently about you know how do how do minds uh cognize each other and what exactly happens it's a bit of a, a complicated process because it's a it i know i've seen this in like manga and things a lot where it's like if enough people are thinking about something it manifests it it manifests and becomes real it's i can't go that's, into the that's the secret oh the secret oh yeah yeah that's what <laughs> no, that's, that is the self-help stuff out there is is like, yeah if you just believe something or want something hard enough, it'll happen. Yeah. Yeah. That's entirely what the secrets whole like that whole thing is just want something enough and it'll happen, which is just selling people what they want to hear rather than actually saying something interesting. Yeah. Although, but for the, with the Buddhist flavor, it's all about, well, these are the things that you believe in that you're anxious of. These are the things that you fear. This is the, the world of suffering. Um, and it's kind of the secret turned on its head where you find yourself in this uh, horrifying realm, right? It's your own delusion right. of self that creates, you know, all of these things. That, yeah. that puts yeah. you where you're at. Yep. That tracks to me. Yeah. So so I would... Go ahead. Uh, 
I want to kind of try and summarize what this whole, you know, can't cognize other minds is. And that's not solipsistic. That's saying we can't read each other's minds. What we're cognizing is others' actions and words and personality, which is not the same thing as their mind. So really what that, that's not saying that you can't interact with other minds. It's more that you can't interact directly with other minds. Yeah. And I think an important part of this too is um, that for the return, it's like these little conscious atoms, right? And having one of these things, and that, that's my conventional kind of modern Englishism way to say it. I think there's problems with that. But um, for the return to have one of these bits of consciousness itself does not make a mind, right? You have to have them kind of together and inter- interacting a certain way. Um, ah. And we're not we're not constantly cognizing every possible um, consciousness bit at all times. Um, just the ones that are close by. Yeah, just the ones that are close right. by, just the ones that you have access to. So you're always cognizing other consciousness, um, but it's it's only in very rare cases uh, in in the tradition. So, example for like a Buddha, a Buddha has access to other people's minds because. A Buddha is omniscient, right? So he, he can read minds. Yeah, he can read minds. Um, but in our everyday experience, yeah, we, we can't really do that. So now, in a way, we've jumped from an uncomfortable solipsist point of view to now a possibly uncomfortable intimacy with other minds if you have the ability to uh, become a Buddha or a Bodhisattva or something. So if we go back to the metaphor of the atoms coming together to make a solid, we could think of the solid as um, the entire experience world where, you know, it's the one we live in that's got stuff in it. It's got things that happen in it. And um, we are, each of our vijnanas, each of our consciousnesses are individual atoms in that solid. And we are cognizing and dealing with and experiencing only those atoms that are nearby to us through whatever samsaric nonsense puts them close to us. Um, including not only people, but stuff and things. In this model, remember that um, everything is a perfumation of mind, right? So even like inanimate objects, you're still close to another person's mind because someone made that. Someone made that thing and someone brought it to you. And so you're cognizing other people's cognization uh, through, through those things. That's the connection that you have there. And so the Buddha then has... A complete picture. He can see the entire solid and every atom in it and everything outside of that solid system, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. And it can turn off our, our conventional view too, and he can you know, kind of go into the uh, nirvana where he recognized Vijnapti as, as Vijnapti and nothing else, right? Right, yeah. yeah. So let's get into the path of enlightenment in Yogacara. How does the Yogacara understand the path of enlightenment? Uh, compared to other schools that we've studied, I'm wondering: should we talk about the four four tiers? Oh yeah, beaches, or should that. we leave that for the other? Oh yeah, we missed that. We never got to. Let's do that first. Yeah. So yeah. So yeah, we have these we have these four tiers of of minds. Um, also, docs. I know that that you play kind of the the skeptics role. I have no. Um, yes. I've under no. Uh, I'm not lying to myself but thinking that you might believe or or, or uh, accept any of these I mean, things. 
Uh, yeah, I'm I'm a skeptic, but I'm gonna try not to be an asshole about it. You know? <laughs> like, it's just it's a lot, the Uchur, it's a lot. Um and I, I It's think, a far cry from what we might what we might be used to. Yeah, it's definitely not yeah. that um that clean cut, simple Buddhism that a lot of people in the West are looking for, right? It's it's this I remember you guys talked about before about um Buddhism is a lot of like playing Legos with these models. And I think uh, yeah. I think Basically, all all Buddhism is like that, but uh, Yogacara just goes really crazy with all of the different, uh, you know, Lego pieces it, it picks together and it puts together. It can, I think, actually sometimes even feel physically exhausting to try to keep it all uh, in mind. But uh, the reason I loved that Lego um, uh, example was because this is kind of how their model of their four tier model of the mind works. Um, so we're talking about kind of the lowest level. We're talking about vijnana and vijnapti, consciousness and, and cognizing, and how it interacts with each other. So what the Yogacara says is that it, this is kind of a, um, a A to B kind of creation story of a mind. This probably isn't actually how it's going to work, and that's, and that's because of other things in, in Buddhism. But this is um, kind of if we were to think about it in, in the theoretical, we'll, we'll say it works like this. Uh, so you have these Vijnana bouncing around and they're cognizing other things or really what they're doing is they kind of exist in a cause and effect relationship, right? So they're, they're conditioning each other. Eventually, enough of, enough of them start cognizing um, each other that at the end point, you get a sentient being, Right? Um, and that's what this four-tier model of mind is is trying to do, trying to explain. Another uh, thing that it's trying to explain is how the heck do we get to a sentient being with a karmic past that is carried with them if there is no soul to or like karmic counter that, that sticks with somebody that is permanent? Um, how is there a karmic continuity? Uh, so it answers these two questions. So the first thing that we have is the is the alia, the storehouse consciousness. And what that is, is that um, all that really is, is a number of different things conditioning each other um, in a collection. Uh, so they're conditioning each other. They're doing this cognizing thing. And then eventually out of that, and we'll get back to the alia in, in its uh, place as uh, karmic retribution. Because what it does is that in, in a regular sentient being, it, it actually kind of does that soul job where it's doing karmic counting. But So out of that comes this second um, consciousness. And what that is, is that enough of these vijnana in, in the alia, in this collection of consciousness, start cognizing each other that they, that they make a... Uh, I think of the, this, sticking with the kind of materialistic view, we would say something like, well, the atoms make a formation to make X, Y, Z. The Vijnana act together to uh, start cognizing a self-other distinction. So it can it can say, uh, this belongs to me, that belongs to the object, I am cognizing the object. Um, that begins working and cognizing objects. And on top of that, um, you get associated the the this consciousness, which we call the manas, or we can call it here the ego. The ego starts associating certain 
acts of cognition as itself. So that creates another consciousness on top. We call that the, the manavijnana. And that is, the manavijnana is like, these are conscious moments of consciousness and these are mine. Uh, so it's not doing the, the subject-object distinction, but it is what is identified as subject or object. And then the last thing that happens is that uh, that manavijnana, that, and that's what we call the mind, the conventional mind. That's kind of what we have access to every day. Um, that begins cognizing other things and those become certain senses. So those become sense consciousness. So like your eye sees a blue thing and then that has a moment of blue and then the manavijnana takes that moment of blueness and it begins reflecting. That moment of blueness becomes other thoughts. I think of the blue ocean or I think of blueberries and I think of oh maybe blueberry pie. My grandmother, she always made it for me on, you know. Associative thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So at that top level, that fourth tier, sense data, um, what's happening there is that uh, three things come together. You have um, a sense organ, which itself is a kind of vijnana, but this would be like the the faculty of smell. Then you have uh, the object that the mind is aiming at. So that would be the smell of blueberries, or blueberry pie. Um, and then you have the last, which is the actual um, moment of consciousness. And then that's, that's how you get um, an everyday experience is those three things coming together are supported by these other three tiers below it. So it's important to mention that um, without the co-presence of Mano Vijnana, we would be like taking in all this sense data, but we really wouldn't be taking it in. It would just be the interaction between um, our eyes and things that could be seen. But we wouldn't look at something and understand that that is something we've seen before or haven't seen before. So um, the co-presence of monovijnana all the time is kind of what makes cognition possible in this model. Yeah, absolutely. The, and the monovijnana, that, that regular everyday mind, in certain states that we know of, it gets turned off. So, for example, um, anesthesia gets turned off. Dreamless sleep, we don't have experience. Um, and let me think, oh, certain high levels of attainment of uh, meditation, it gets turned off. Um, I think certain accounts of the Buddha's Parinirvana, it says that he, he doesn't have uh, Manavijnana. Um, so that's really the conscious mind. And that also lends a distinction. So that gets turned off. If you can turn off these consciousnesses, if they can kind of go away for a second, um, where does our, our karmic continuity come from? Well, in a certain sense, if you can turn them all off, you can turn the, the alia off, your you're karmic continuity is done. Um, but the, the lower two levels, or the lowest two levels, the alia and the manas, the storehouse and the ego, um, these things don't turn off really until... Um, the, the ego, it can turn off a really high meditative attainments. And the alia um, does not stop being the alia until enlightenment. Whether that be um, a kind of Theravada Shravaka enlightenment or full and final Buddhahood. Um, but it's interesting that we can have unconscious moments but still have these things. This is, again, is kind of a, an, 
thing drawn from phenomenology or of everyday experience, the tradition says the ego-making consciousness and the storehouse consciousness, these two are not uh, in are not cognizable. It is very similar. A lot of people said, oh, well, that's that's crazy. They're not cognizable. It's like Freud, you know. These this is the unconscious. And in some sense, it's a, a useful way to think about it. Um, but I think uh, one last important thing we said it before, we should say it again. Uh, I skipped over an important function of the alia, and that is karmic continuity. So what's what's going on is that you build up the whole um, model, and with the manavijnana, the the everyday mind and your senses, you can start doing um, intentional actions, and then those intentional actions. They reap. They cause new vijnana to come into to being, uh, and the mana says, "Aha! That was an intentional action. I, uh, because I am a thing, and those are objects. I can appropriate that. Uh, it becomes mine, and then that starts conditioning the the sentient being. That becomes their karma. So that karma. The gets, part of that is that um, it is looking at results of actions as reifying self. Yeah. That's the important delusive or elusive part that uh. makes this karmically charged is that um, these results, these vijnana that the that the manas appropriates for itself, those um, they perpetuate the illusion that's that there is a self-other distinction. Mm-hmm. And the, the tradition says that when those um, kind of appropriated actions happen the the most basic consciousness, the alia, gets um, planted with seeds, and those seeds they're not real things, um, but they're kind of the the future possibilities. What so your action that you, you think about it now, the action you do now, what doors do they open? What doors do they close? Um, like let's say if I today I choose to go to the gym, that opens up possibilities of the future that. Um, you know, I will be healthy. I choose not to go to the gym that closes that possibility. Right. Um, and that's what, uh, explains karma continuity, even in the moments where our minds can shut off in the everyday world, you would think in those moments, well, I'm gone, right? That's nirvana. But now you still have this unconscious carrying along with you. Those can be thought of as your survival instincts, right? Like, um, if someone is not uh abused of like a fully formed frontal lobe then they still eat they still drink they still go to the bathroom they still do survivalist things and they're not doing it consciously with an awareness of self and um that being the case they're still doing karmic actions they're still acting in the karmic world and um, that explains how without an ego you still have an alaya and you still haven't made it all the way there yet Mm -hmm. I think that that is a as much. Uh, I think that's a good enough uh, take on the mind. Um, Docs, any any questions? Yeah, I've got the basic shape of it, and it's like you're talking about this being hard for a skeptic to swallow. The thing is, this isn't really making any scientific claims. Everything that's going on here is very internal, mm-hmm. and when you're talking in that internal sense, it's a lot easier for at least me and my brand of skepticism to accept it because you're not really saying anything 
about the world that I can test, which is what mm -hmm. as a you know a skeptic slash scientist slash engineer, that's the kind of thing that I'm thinking about. So everything that you've just said, a lot of it comes down to kind of an idea of the mind being more than the sum of its parts, where you have this one level that's all these parts, but then they get complex enough through their interactions to start this other level, and then that starts this other level, and then you get up to all four of them. Like That is a... I'm not sure the right word is plausible, but I would say acceptable, a theory of the mind. Like, yeah, that's fine. I have no problem with that. I don't necessarily agree with it. I don't subscribe to it myself, but I see what you're getting at, and yeah, I'm following. That's... Yes. You know, it's pretty reasonable. Once, at the end once, of the day. once you once you get out of that, cart you know the uh, the Western mindset of you know mind body duality, like yeah, it's good to get out of that and see how people who didn't get with get that foundational part of their theory of the mind see what their theories look like. Yeah. So yeah, I'm enjoying this. I think that it also one thing that's important to note about it is that it is. It's the culmination of a lot of discussions that are going on parallel and prior to um, Yogacara. And in doing that, it solves what some of these Yogacara people thought were problems with other schools and sects that were doing their thing when they were doing their thing. Um, how does karma actually make sense? You know, if we think of it as this um, reflexive and kind of... Um, kind of permanent substantial property of the world and of existence, then you have to like, in some senses, you do have to kind of be able to point to it. <laughs> and yeah. what I mean by that yeah. is like, you know, in order to, to not say something exists in a way that violates the truth of emptiness and impermanence, you do have to kind of say, okay, well, how is my karma different from that guy's karma in the sense of like, why is my rebirth going to be worse? Why is my karmic retribution going to be worse than that other guys. And this has a plausible model of how to answer that question. Mm -hmm. And in the time, you know, the Yogacara, in a, like all Indian Buddhism, everything is critique and debate. And a lot of this is kept alive in um, Tibetan Buddhism, kind of in a, in a ritualized form. Um, and, you know, the debates in East Asia as well. Uh, but, you know, a lot of people at the time said, no, the Alia, you're reifying uh, an Atman, you know. It, uh, this was not a non-controversial stance within in Buddhism, too. Um, for what uh, it's worth, from what I've seen, there are no non-controversial stances in Buddhism. There's going to be <laughs> yeah. somebody who disagrees. That's true. Yeah, that is true. Although, a lot of times... It, uh, as as you've seen, and as we'll you know probably see in, in in East Asia, a lot of times they, at least in the, I can speak to the Chinese, debates are veiled as, uh, you know, it's not that you're wrong; it's just that my view is more broad. You know, it's, it's like, my view is more enlightened than yours. Yeah, it's just like a thin veneer of like ah, oh, you know, it's <laughs> together. Um, but yeah, so I've covered a lot of difficult, really difficult material. Um, the path can be equally as difficult, but thankfully I have specialized a little less in that, so we're going to get kind of the, the dumbed-down version because that's yeah. what I have. Yeah, let's get the broad strokes of, of the path. So we've talked about like, okay, here's why someone's karma is what it is, and here is how it sticks to them, and now let's talk about what they do to get out from under it. Yep. 
So you talked a bit about how this relates to the mind and, and you Nick, brought up pretty early on the way to, to Buddhahood uh, or the way to Arhatship is to uh, kind of empty out the alia of these seeds, these bijas. It's to empty out um, the alia, make it so that it's no longer holding kind of karmic possibility, right? Um, and this is done mostly through meditation. Uh, but unlike a, a lot of uh, kind of East Asian Buddhisms that are very popular in the in the West right now, especially in the U.S., um, the Yogacara doesn't really have a sudden enlightenment tradition, even though it does have a Tathagata Garbha tradition or Buddha nature tradition. We haven't talked a lot about the sudden enlightenment versus gradual enlightenment idea, but um, the short version is that with sudden enlightenment, you do you have to do a critical amount of practice and study, and then it hits you all at once. Um, as soon as it's like getting to the top of the mountain, you're not at the top of the mountain until you're at the very top. And until you get there, you have to do a lot of climbing. And in this case, the climbing is meditation and study and good works and all those things. Um, gradual enlightenment is instead of thinking about the top of the mountain as the top, thinking of it in terms of elevation. So gradual enlightenment is like you're getting more and more enlightened as you study more and more, because mm -hmm. as you climb the mountain, you're going up in elevation. And, um, the difference there is that in a model of gradual enlightenment, you can get higher up on the mountain or you can go lower. And so your level of enlightenment by some accounts can change. You can become enlightened and then become less enlightened and go up and down for a while before you actually get to the very top. And getting to the top is nothing special other than being at a higher elevation than you might have been before. And you can see this in the microscope. Oh, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, and that also goes back to the idea that we've talked about before of non-returners. There are also those that can't backslide after a certain back point, right? Is that yeah. is that the case with both sudden and gradual enlightenment? Oh, that's a tough question. <laughs> yeah, oh, okay. That's a really oh, tough question. I like yeah, it's good that you ask it, though. So um, in some gradual enlightenment models, I'm not sure about the yoga chart. Um, I'm thinking primarily of like... Zen and like Tendai and um, these later Mahayana schools that really exist primarily in China and Japan and Korea, um, they have emptied out the distinction between sudden and gradual enlightenment such that um, a non-returner is someone who has become gradually enlightened enough that their final sudden enlightenment will happen no matter what. <laughs> gotcha. Um, and then the other side is like, uh, if you are completely and totally married to this gradual enlightenment model and you think like, okay, there is no sudden model. Um, in that regard, if you accrue enough good works and get to the top and stay there long enough, you could be there and be stuck there and not come back. People don't usually come down the mountain from the top in that set in that sense. But, um, yeah, and then obviously the sudden enlightenment people—they think that once you have it, you have it, and you're you're so you will not return. So there are kind of different conceptions of this non-returner idea in these different sudden enlightenment, gradual enlightenment models. But um, the ones I'm most familiar with, they've done away with the sudden gradual distinction in a lot of important ways, such that um, I mean it's a duality. So exactly, yeah, it gets emptied out through non-dualism very easily, and um, 
so it's a confusing way to think about it. I don't yeah. know how the Yogacara deals with it. Yeah. So I, th- I think um, something to keep in mind too, I called earlier the Yogacara is a very late development, but it's a very late development in India. I'd say for, for East Asia, it's actually a very early development. It's, it gets um, brought in and built upon and um, like a lot of the, the emptying out by, especially the Chan comes later. Um, but I would say it is gradual in, in, in almost every sense. And also there's, there's problem kind of touched on a bit when you talk about gradual enlightenment, do you mean the path is really long or do you mean like to take it as a moment or as multiple moments, but you can see in the Yogacara that it is from like the microscopic level to the macroscopic it's, it's gradual. So, um, even in the moment of enlightenment, it's said to take 10 moments they're like kind of these there's like little stages in yeah each little stages little, yeah and even though these things are super rapid it's still you know 10 moments not one um but then in the middle stage which we'll talk a bit about here i'm I, there's a couple of models of like how many stages of alignment we're going to talk about the, the five stage model and then at the longest one there is this saying which is once you encounter the buddha dharma it takes three maha kalpas to become a buddha you know it takes three forevers pretty much yeah it takes three forevers yeah. <laughs> uh so it's, it's gradual in almost every sense um but then that's not to say that you're going to see you're not going to see yoga ideas like the alia being brought in especially so zen is like it's a lot of yoga and madhyamaka in this later development and they use terms like alia they're super conditioned by the Yogacara, but um, they still have this sudden enlightenment view. Um, but the goal, actually, we can look at the, we can look at Chan to see what does the goal look like? Because um, there's always this debate, well, is Nirvana and Parnirvana, is that like nothingness? Is that like a void? Um, and even the answer for the for the Yogacara and, and to even for early Buddhist schools, no, it's, it's not a void. So I kept talking about the mind... Uh, the different parts of the mind going away. Uh, but really what it is, is that uh, they still exist once they've been transformed. Um, this transformation, especially for the Alia, it's called the transformation of the base. So you're making it so that it's no longer karmic. That doesn't mean that it doesn't really exist anymore. It so, still exists. Um, again, like I said, the Yogacara is always, it's never denying existence. It's always clarifying mode of existence of the thing so the important part there is like okay the buddha became enlightened how was he able to hang around for 40 more years and preach it's because of that he just because he became enlightened doesn't mean that he was completely blown out he he had just according to the yogacara people turned the base and in that regard he he was he still existed he still preached the sutras and all that good stuff but um he wasn't accruing karma or reifying self such that when it came his time to die that he would be reborn again yeah so level two through four still exist and the base is no longer karmic basically yeah and actually uh and yeah and they all exist and they all have a chan gives them all a particular name and i believe these are yoga charan names again i my specialty really isn't the path um but the all the different uh levels uh they start serving a new function once they get transformed. So ah. the Alia, um, it becomes called the mirror-like knowledge. Because it's been purified. It starts to reflect the universe around it. Is that right? Yeah. Like, in an unblemished, unbiased, un 
changed way, you kind of become everything. <laughs> yeah, it's nothing other than what exactly it is, which is a there's no self, you know, kind of uh, separating it out. The, the manas, the ego-making consciousness, what it becomes, it becomes the perfection of uh, equanimity or the perfection of, of equality. So its function now is to say there is no subject or object. All things, either everything can be a subject or an object, or you could say the, the world is devoid of a, of a subject or object. So it's essentially the realization of like a perfected, non-dualistic way of of understanding self, world, and everything in it. And then the the next one, um, these those two are the easy ones to remember because they're <laughs> they're super important to how a uh, enlightened person functions in the world. The next ones, I forget. They're they're basically perfected. It's it's you know they're awesome. Uh, you have uh, like perfect, clear senses of everything that's around you for the for the top level. And then the mind uh, can perfectly cognize any and all other consciousness around it. So um, I forget what their names are. In other schools, the way that they handle those two levels is that, like, for example, as they say in later chapters of the Lotus Sutra, which we haven't read or discussed yet, but um, they'll say things like, in terms of the senses, whenever you, whenever you get there, whatever getting there means based on whatever school or sutra you're a part of, um, whenever you get there, your senses suddenly can see and recognize and uh, sense the full range, the full spectrum. They're no longer limited, right? There's They're like omniscient. This, yeah, there's mm-hmm. this platonic idea that we have that, you know, the senses are fallible and limited. We only see like 10% of the electromagnetic magnetic spectrum with our eyes. And we only smell those things that can interact with our nasal glands. And we can only taste water-soluble molecules and on and on it goes. But once you've gotten there, those five senses, they, um, they're not limited in that way. And the same with mind. Whenever you cognize, whenever a Buddha cognizes something, it doesn't just cognize that something. It's, it's cognizing suchnesses. It's cognizing karmic past. It's fully, fully omniscient, like we've been saying. And so um, and for those two levels, really just like the blinders that are karmically put there by a delusion of self have been removed. So that's the end goal. Um, but we see a number of different models of the path and in, in different strata. Uh, there's like a 17-stage model, which that goes back to Asanga, the, the guy who met with Maitreya at the, at the beginning. Uh, there's a 10-stage model, and there's a 5-stage model. So I'm going to talk about the 5-stage model. Um, but I think something important to note about the, the path in the Uvatara is... Um, the Uvatara is a Mahayana school, although you'll find um, in East Asia, um, you know, a lot of Japanese schools, they'll call it quasi-Mahayana. They have different yeah. terms for this because they view it as kind of a... They view it as a mix between Theravada and Mahayana that's like just just enough on the borderline that it turns into their historical punching bag. <laughs> yeah. And a, a lot know. of that... Um, I know you guys did an episode on Tendai. I'm sure you yep. guys are going to read the Lotus Sutra. We've done chapter three of the Lotus Sutra yeah. so far. Oh, so so you have yep. talked about... Yeah, Doc. I was just going to say the Lotus Sutra is going up or went up today, didn't it? It did, Or yeah. is that after it? Yeah. So, yeah, that's that's a new episode. So yeah. you haven't heard it yet. We just were basically reading and discussing the parable of the burning house. 
Yeah, so you yeah. so you guys have covered kind of how most of Mahayana feels about Travakas and Pratyeka Buddhas, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So the Yogacara um, acknowledges the validity of Travakas more so than other Mahayana schools. And I think that um, regardless of their other views about other things, <laughs> that alone yeah, that... will kind of make you the punching bag by these Mahayana people who are emphasizing Buddhahood and Bodhisattvahood above all else. Yeah. Yeah. So for yeah. them, Shravaka, Pratyeka Buddha, they, and, and we see a later um, writer, Kweiji, uh, in, in China, he says, this is the true Ekayana because all Nirvanas are, are equal to each other, and that's the <laughs> one real true vehicle. So he, he actually writes a commentary on the Lotus Tree, even though he's tied to all these ideas. Um, but so the Yogacara recognizes that they're, there, um, and this goes back to the Sanjana Mochana Sutra, so it's probably um, reacting directly to the Lotus Sutra in some sense because it says their their nirvana is equal, and it comes after. I mean, yeah. it's, it's there's clear reasons why it would be in dialogue. Yeah, but it it there is a little funny business about the Yogacara, which is after you've been exposed to the Yogacara, uh, if you accept its teachings in the tradition. You're not allowed to to uh, 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 functionally. You're not allowed to try to become a shravaka or pratyeka Buddha anymore. You have to go for the um, Buddha hood um, through the bodhisattva hood path. Yeah, through through the bodhisattva path. It's it's kind of like it's all valid, but some are more valid than others. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 yeah. it's kind of uh, I guess them just being nice. The fact that they're well, we'll do all this theoretical legwork for you to, to show you how we believe that you're... Because everybody is already doing that. I mean, like, yeah. they have to deal with the existence of Shravakas all around them yeah. <laughs> at yeah. the time. And and so it's like, yeah, good job, guys. Keep going. But... <laughs> yeah. So we'll, we'll talk here about the Bodhisattva path. Um, but a lot of what determines which path you take has to do with your karmic back history. Um, because... The Yogacara, like all other Buddhist schools, doesn't recognize any um, permanent existing thing. Um, but because of the way that karma works, because it's not really a, a thing, it's more the nature of things, you can get into these theoretical positions. And a lot of this is theoretical, where you kind of get locked into one path or, or the other. And that's called the the Gotra or clan system. We won't really talk about that. We'll just talk about the Bodhisattva path. We've talked a lot about the Gotra system. In oh, you have? Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. Uh, so this will, just for the Bodhisattva path, because if anybody is uh, interested in, in the Yogacara, the Yogacara is going to turn around and say, well, you have to do this one. Right. Um, so the first of, the, of this five-stage model is the provisional stage. And this is um, before you start meditating, before you start doing anything. This is... Spend many lifetimes being a nice person so that you have this karmic bank uh, set up and also have healthy habits and, and you know, uh, do X, Y, Z wholesome thing. So you have this bank of karma so that when you begin, you can really get going. So this is what you need in order to be able to first encounter the Buddha Dharma and be able to accept it and do something with it. If someone encounters the Buddha Dharma, that, but they don't have enough of this karmic positive, then they might not accept it. They might slander it and screw themselves up royally. Or if they have bad enough karma, they'll just never come in contact with it. And they'll never know 
you know, the possibility of enlightenment, of salvation. Yep. So basically you have to have a certain amount of merit to even start on this. Yes. You have to hike a little bit before you can start to climb the mountain. Right. The second stage is uh, the stage where you enter into yoga. Um, So this is, I've seen some people kind of describe the stage experimenting with uh, practices. I would say this is uh, the stage where you really do samadhi meditation. You do the the calming of the mind, or as I I like to say, the turning of the gain knob of the mind down. Um, And you do this until you've practiced, until you've mastered uh, kind of this four-stage jhana samadhi, which this is a... Again, Yogacara is very... um, Not in the sense that it it sticks with like political institutions, but it, it's a very tr- uh, conservative tradition because it, it conserves all this older material. So they're using this um, four-stage samadhi model that you can find in the in the Theravada. We've oh, talked like, a lot about the jhana system and yeah, the four, the yeah. four form jhanas. We haven't talked about the formless jhanas because I don't even understand those probably. Yeah. But. <laughs> so they do do the, the formless jhanas, but we can kind of put those to the side because they're... It's interesting. Do they have soteriological function? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I, I have some ideas, but I don't know. Um, but you exit the stage once you can do the four form jhanas. That's a long way. This is the second of the five stages, but understand that like people spend their entire lives and multiple lifetimes trying to get even to like the second, third, fourth jhana. Yeah, like this is actually not an easy thing to do. Um, it takes a lot of a lot, a lot of work and practice and concentration. Yeah. This is, again, the, the three Maha Kalpas. To, to yeah, this is when they start, right? Yeah. Right. I think, I, I'm not sure, you know, the thing is, it's saying three forever, so, you know, well, when does it really start? <laughs> yeah. Um, but then, Fair enough. the next, the next uh, um, stage is kind of, of the five, is deepening understanding. So this is when you start doing the Pashima. Um, and it's interesting in the Uchara, and this goes back to the same same dinner mantra in the sutra as well. Like all other, and you guys have talked about fashion, right? Uh, only very, very briefly. Oh, okay. It might it might be good to talk a little bit about how it works here. Yeah. So, um, if you go and talk to Theravada Buddhists today, they'll uh, a lot of them will prescribe the pashana meditation. Um, there was this whole big movement called the pashana only, where you don't actually practice samadhi at all. Um, and you just go into the Vipassana. Because um, there is a precedent in the early text that you can become enlightened without samadhi. But I would say the vast, vast majority of, of the early text assume that you're going to be doing some samadhi before you do Vipassana. But this distinction but, being samadhi is, like we said, turning the gain knob down. And Vipassana is concentrating really hard on something, right? Yeah. It's the okay. it's the meditation that cultivates prajna, it cultivates insight, and uh, Buddhas are marked with the kind of perfected insight, right? Um, so, what this is is that you can do you can do vipassana on um, things like uh, there's a really famous uh, the the dead body um, meditation where you kind of you look at a, a rotting corpse and you try to really understand what it is. Um, you can do it in the Satipatthana Sutra on your own breath. Um, you can also take something like a doctrine, like the Four Noble Truths, and, and do Vipassana on that. Or um, 
the uh, links of uh, dependent origination. You can try to understand that as, as clear as possible. And Buddhahood, what it is in, in some of the early texts is that you've really perfected your Vipassana so you really understand everything. You you kind of latch that on to your near omnipotence and then you become fully omnipotent and understand everything, right? You have to have the wisdom um, and the, the prajna that Vipassana gives you in order to um, in order to make it to omniscience. Yeah. I think uh, an important thing um, for anybody who's kind of looking for our books are like, you know, but might not be um, as well versed. Prajna, you'll see it rendered as wisdom or insight, depending. Those are the two big ones. Because uh, that's a super, I think that's a super important term when you're... Absolutely, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So in this, getting back to the five-stage path, this, we have, we're in this third stage, deepening understanding. So that's when you begin doing Vipassana meditation. Um, there's an interesting thing in the Samjana Motrin Sutra, which is for the Yogacara, you can do Vipassana on, on all these things. But the most important thing to do it on is to do it on Buddhist doctrine. And because uh, that's the thing that really brings you to um, final enlightenment. So you do it on something like the Four Noble Truths. And it actually, the Samjana Motrin Sutra, like all of these sutras that claim final, ultimate um understanding and teaching um it it has its own kind of you can read it in an exclusive way uh, where it's saying this is the final truth everything else is garbage right or it also has a very inclusive and it. it's this text it's surprisingly inclusive um in this section so you can find this in the um section the questions of maitreya that's chapter eight i think um it's interesting because it presents uh, this process of Vipassana where you have to take all Buddhist teachings that you can verify that are from the Buddha, which for the Mahayana, huge, huge library. It says you have to integrate them all into one vision and turn that into an object of meditation. Um, but that actually, we're, we are already skipping to the next stage because <laughs> that is the... Um, that's the hard part. <laughs> that's the hard part. So that's the third stage. You start doing Vipassana. The fourth stage is the path of cultivation. You just get better and better at doing samadhi and, and vipassana. Um, and that's where you finally integrate all these ideas. You have perfect understanding of the mind. You know, you've even started to get some, some cities, magical powers. And then eventually you um, achieve the, the fifth stage, which is the final stage, stage of Buddhahood. And then you can... Uh, continue your life and it's very interesting um they even once they even have descriptions of the path after achieving buddhahood they're like we know buddhahood has to be like this because of this logical thing this theorem you know well that was going to be one of my questions is that um lots of buddhist schools they they argue that um fully realized buddhahood means living the buddha's life formulaically such that they are born a prince leave the palace see aging, illness, and death, and asceticism, and go through the two, three, four practices, and then finally decide to sit under a tree and defeat Mara, do all those things. And I was wondering if, um, in this final stage, if that's what you're supposed to do, is supposed to live that life. I think so. I, I don't know if there's like a, a textual locus for that, but I know um, my, my assumption is that because it's, Dukachar inherits so much from the early Buddhist tradition, you probably didn't even have to write that down. You probably just yeah. would have assumed it. 
But the thing that I found really interesting and do a little bit of prep work for this was that there's a robust description attributed to either Maitreya or Asanga in the Yogacara Bhumishastra about what it's like to be in Parinirvana. Which I was like, hmm. how can you write what it's like to be in Parinirvana? And I was like, I yeah, I'm curious about that too. Yeah. I wish I had more time. Maybe if I ever come back, I'll, I'll yeah, bring that, that to Yeah, that would be a really interesting episode. Yeah. Yeah, I want to listen to that, sure. I doubt that it'll be uh, that fulfilling of an answer, <laughs> but I'm sure it'll be a very logical answer. <laughs> I mean, my initial reaction is like, you can't. Like, so it's not. Yeah. Meaning like, you can't write about Perry Nirvana because when you're there, you don't have hands or language or, <laughs> you know, thoughts or an inclination to teach or anything like that. Nor do you have someone recording for you. So, like, because there exists a recording of it, it's yeah. it's it's not you know yeah. it's not actually Perry Nirvana. But it's interesting to um, it'll be definitely interesting to understand like in a very practical sense, not in a doctrinal religious sense, but in a practical sense, they have to have something that kind of shows. Okay, here is the kind of this is the, the broad strokes of what we're going for. This is. We have to have a shape of the goals, you know what I mean? A shape yeah. of the goalposts in order for yeah. people to kick towards them. And so um, it serves a very practical purpose in that regard. And that might be interesting to analyze in some ways. It's like, you know, what does this mean for like teaching purposes for people who are on the path? Yeah, absolutely. There is this also this problematic I feel like we should we should mention here, which I think you, um, you guys might have picked up on, which is... At the end, the description of the path kind of peters off. Um, it's because so if you look at something like the Chung Moisture Moon or, or something like that, um, it'll have a very fine grain breakdown of what kind of moving from one of these stages to another looks like, down to the moments, like I said, for um, Nirvana. Excessively detailed. Yeah, excessively <laughs> detailed. Um, <laughs> but there is also this problem that a lot of people pointed out, which is okay, so you assume a lot of these practices are getting rid of bad karma, but you know, um, how does bad, how can you start with bad karma, the alia and continue on to getting rid of it? If, you know, if bad brings bad. So there is, um, a lot of, a lot of what people are doing with these descriptions of the passage are trying to solve that problem. How can you start from a bad place and get to a good place? If the bad only brings about bad, you can't bring about good. So, um, it's a difficult kind of subsection again, not my not my specialty, but I hope that that's a little bit of justice. It's a little bit of mine actually, because whenever I was in, whenever I was studying this um, in in our classes with our advisor, um, that's the problem I honed in on for one of my projects is the Achantika problem, the problem of of those beings out there who, for whom the path is impossible, for whom they will yeah. never, for one reason or the other, attain enlightenment, Buddhahood, anything. And um, I won't get into the details of how that problem is dealt with, but um, it's interesting and compelling because what's at stake in that question is the possibility of the path. Um, what is it really? What's the shape of it all really if there are those beings out there who are locked out, who can't do it? And um, the short version is um, it's not necessarily that, those, that there are those that are not like permitted. It's not that there are those whose morals are so bad that they are like just completely locked out of the Buddhist path. Like I'm thinking of the Christian versus infidels 
type of mm-hmm. distinction. It's not like that at all. There's actually Achantikas who raise themselves up to really high levels of rebirth and high levels of moral cultivation and high levels of understanding of philosophy and things. But the reason why this category Achantika exists is because those beings don't reach enlightenment over theoretical infinite time. It's not that they can't, it's just that they don't. And that's not so much a moral judgment, even though it gets used as a moral judgment by a lot of people who believe in Achantikas. Um, it's more actually just acknowledging this theoretical statistical anomaly, like, okay, given infinite sentient beings, there have to be some that never do that never get there. And, um, that has its own implications for doctrine and whatever that we won't get into now, but it's, it's definitely a compelling problem to deal with for sure. about Like who can actually even get on the path and, um, who can get to what stage versus the other stages and things like that. Will you do an Antarctica's episode? I will, yeah. Yeah. I, I, think, I, I will be doing yeah, one absolutely. Um, in the future. All right. I think we're going to get to our, our final section here, which is just some of the ritual and practice. Yeah. Because it's a, it's a yeah, super, so. yeah, super theory-driven, theory-laden thing. So a lot of people will be like, well, yeah, great theory. So what are you going to do? Um, so we already talked about Samata, um, Samadhi and Vipassana. Um I won't get into, I think, any more detail with that. Um, but then there are two other things that I wanted to, to talk about. So, you know, we looked at the path. Um, but there's another thing that isn't really uh, Samadhi or Vipassana, although um, it takes, it's related to Samadhi because it, it has to do with mastery of the mind. Um, but one thing that they do, which I think is, uh, I think a booming um, area right now in Buddhist studies is, the Uttara did a lot of visualization techniques. And um, we, we see this this lives on, um, or at least lived on after it. I, don't know, I can't really say whether it lives on today that much. But um, well, no, it does. It does in, in Tibet. Uh, but it lived on in East Asia. Um, you can find a lot of visualization techniques in uh, Pure Land schools. Um, some people argue that even early material like the Lotus Sutra, maybe it is a large visualization meditation we've been reading the whole thing wrong but so they they do the avatar does a lot of visualization meditation so what they'll do is they'll sit down they'll um pick a mental object to meditate on um so for example and you see people doing this in even in the Theravada today they'll say i'll think i'll look first i'll start with meditating on a blue disc a real physical blue disc until I can memorize that object and I can call it to mind. Then they'll take the blue disc away. And they'll be thinking about the blue disc. Um, and they'll meditate on the mental object. Um, so the the highest form of this, or, the, or one of the higher forms of this, is something like meditating on Maitreya in Tushita Heaven. The Yogacara has a big connection to Maitreya as you know, the, the teachings are kind of ascribed to him. Um, and most people who follow historically in the historical record who follow Yogacara, kind of Maitreya as their tutelary deity. Um, so one practice that a lot of people did is they would do meditation, visualizing Maitreya, visualizing Maitreya's palace, his heaven. Um, and a lot of, a lot of um, practitioners would do this on the moment of their death, hoping that it would cause, it would condition their karma so they'd be reborn in that heaven. We talked a lot about the Pure Land way of doing that. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is, it sounds like it's a complete copy and paste from one to the other. Like what, <laughs> what they're doing and why they're doing it is, yep. you know, is 
instead of it being Maitreya in the Pure Land, they are just they're visualizing Amida and his Pure Land uh, with the goal of at the moment of death getting there yeah. whenever they're reborn. I'm fairly biased, um, but I, I I so I can't argue this academically at least not yet. <laughs> but I have a sneaking suspicion that um, visualization practice goes to the some of the earliest Indian mm-hmm. um, transmissions, and I think. A lot of times it's right there in front of us in the literature. It's just that we've been unable to read it because we keep uh, kind of reading things in a very conventional way. We read it like the newspaper rather than as like a devotional text, meaning we read it because it lays out a lot of facts and it Mm -hmm. lays out a lot of arguments and we're reading it like we would read Western philosophy. And um, because we're reading it that way and because we're not familiar in like Judeo-Christian countries with visualization techniques, there is no way to visualize the Christian God and no one should really try. <laughs> yeah. I think um, an important thing to, to note here, which I can't believe I haven't said this the whole time, but this will probably, has probably been said in the um, Yogacara introductory episode. So the Yogacara as it stands doesn't really exist in India or in East Asia, it does exist. There is a direct um, transmission of the Yogacara that exists in Japan at two temples. The One of them, uh, the very famous Kofukuji. Um, but that Yogacara has changed quite a bit. Although, um, we'll get back to them. But just to say, there's... Uh, oh, and there's also a transmission in Tibet. Although, Yogacara is always placed in a secondary role. Um, as uh, an addition to Madhyamaka. So the vast majority of the transmission lines there are Madhyamaka-focused. Um, but they're very learned on, on Yogacara and even some of our... So, for example, the Samdhi Narmochana text. Um, other, the version we have in other languages has eight chapters, but the one in Tibet has ten chapters. We also have a number of commentaries on the Samdhi Narmochana in, in Tibetan. So it's strong Yogacara, but Yogacara has never stood on its own, really. And what that ends up meaning is that if you rock around in China or in Japan or in Korea um, or in India and you ask people, are you a Yogacara Buddhist? They'll probably say no. Like, yeah. and, and that's the vast, 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 vast majority of people will yeah. say no. This is more like a school of thought, um, at least in the modern day, rather than like a fully realized standalone sect like mm-hmm. Chan is or mm-hmm. like Tendai is. Yeah, I like to, okay. to think of it as one of the three great kind of philosophical orientations. Mm-hmm. But you can kind of think of the philosophical orientations like a little bit of paint. You know, you can mix it together. Like the, yeah. we talked about the Yogacara and Tantagatha Garva. Um, so everybody inherits a little bit of Yogacara in their sect. Um, but the only really true kind of we are Yogacharans would be um, in Japan. As the Hoso people, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it looks like this is a school that bridges Theravada and Mahayana, so it's kind of in a middle place. So it makes sense that it wouldn't have a big following today, at least, because I would guess that most of the schools that were at one point Yogacara eventually become some brand of Mahayana. That's essentially how it works. I mean, what we're talking about with Yogacara and Majamaka and Sarvastivada these are all these early non-sectarian orientations of Buddhism, which are inherited by Mahayana and Theravada and expounded upon and dealt with much later. So in that regard, it's like um, 
it's like a rock star's greatest influences. You know yeah. what I mean? Right. If you look at um, Dogen, for example, his in Japan, he's a, he's the patriarch of the Soto Zen school. Um, his he's a rock star whose greatest influence is Tatagata Garba, Buddha Nature. And if you look at others, they have these are those influences. But these different rock stars can have different influences. They mm-hmm. can have several yep. at the same time. And um, there are certain like mutual exclusivities between Sarvastivada, Majyamaka, Yogacara, other ones. But at the end of the day, they can still they still do end up um, in their discourse, kind of picking and choosing between them mm-hmm. and taking from multiple ones to develop their own discourse. And what's quite funny too is that um, you'll see that you'll you'll find these figures like Nagarjuna, he's associated with Madhyamaka, and Vasubandhu, he's associated with, with Yogacara. Um, but you'll see in, in East Asia, for example, um, Pure Land sect, the, the Shinshu, they, one of their patriarchs is Vasubandhu. Now, there's been, uh, there's some arguments, well, maybe there's some, there's some Yogacara influence in, in Pure Land. But kind of putting that aside, though, you know, Vasubandhu is writing in Sanskrit, and uh, the Shinshu people are not reading Sanskrit. Um, also, but there are some Chinese translations of things, but the Shinshu people aren't really using those translations either. So uh, sometimes the fame of a, of a patriarch or a figure... Uh, is enough, really. Yeah, it's really enough. It's like uh, there, there may be no philosophical connection at all, but... They won't go off and make the arguments. They won't, like, the, the Pure Land people won't go off and cite the Trimsika that Vasubandhu wrote to mm. um, make their discourse, but they'll just be like, yeah, he was great. Yeah. <laughs> So visualization practice is, is one practice that if, let's say if there were yoga charts today, they'd be doing it. The reason that we know that we did it, uh, one of my, is that we see in the historical record, but one of my favorite uh, examples is this really great story. So I studied this guy named Xuanzang. He's one of the very few Chinese uh, monks to actually go from China to India, learn Sanskrit and, and bring texts back. Um, and he was uh, he was born I don't know, six five uh, he was born in like five ninety six five ninety eight, um, so he's going from Tang Dynasty China to to India, um, but there's all these autobiographies about him because he he brings all these crazy texts back he he starts at this academy to translate um, texts, but in one of his autobiographies it said they're uh, kind of sailing down the river Ganges in a boat to get from one place to another with his um, party of people. And these pirates stop the ship and, you know, they take out their swords. They say, come on, get out. Um, and he says, and they say, we need one of you to uh, be a sacrifice. And uh, I can't remember, this might be an accretion. I can't remember how many things there are. I think Xuanzang volunteers to be the sacrifice and they look him up and down and also, apparently, Xuanzang, he's supposed to be super handsome. Uh, it's really funny because he gets described as like, man, he's the sexy beast, but he's a monk, right? <laughs> uh, and he, he, his story goes on to be Journey to the West, so he's a very fun character in that way. But uh, they look him up and down huh. and say, you're really handsome. You'll be our sacrifice. <laughs> uh, and apparently, they were, they were followers of, of Maha Maya, you know, the um, kind of female god who's half destructive half motherly um this is a non-buddhist local type of tradition that's not yeah it, it's like nearby it's associated it's next to 
Buddhism, yeah. but they're not Buddhists. Yeah, they're not Buddhists, so therefore, you know, they, they know Schwanzog kind of uses this, well, you're, you're pirates, you're ruffians, right? Yeah. You, you don't know the Dharma, but um, they, they're like, he's like, all right, you can chop off my head, sacrifice me to the goddess. I just need a couple hours to prepare. And they're like, you know, this guy is holy. He's convincing. He's let, hot. Let him, he's hot. <laughs> let him do it. So uh, his his students record that what he did is that he um, went into a state of samadhi where he turned his, his mind down. And then he started visualizing Maitreya and Tushita heaven. And uh, he was brought to the chopping block while in a meditative state. So they had to drag him there. Um, and eventually, what happens? Is there a wind that blows the pirates away? or I think it's something like that. There, there's there's some great natural like force, natural disaster. There's like a deus ex machina, right? The, the pirates right. end up not being able to... to... Maitreya essentially does something yeah, to yeah. prevent. But when... He, uh, his students shake him and get him out of his uh, meditative uh, slumber. He's a little bit sad because he thought that he had died and he thought he had really... He thought he had really been a sacrifice, like made a bodhisattva sacrifice. Yeah, he like, thought that he had, he had been able to enter Maitreya's um, heaven that way. So we know that they did this sort of practice. Because this legend is so well-preserved, we, we know that visualization was like something that people did facing down death. Yeah. Yeah. The other kind of practice um, that we do know probably you can reconstruct backwards um, from the Hoso. Uh, this is, uh, we know that as part of their initiation practices, that they chant um, Chinese texts attributed to this guy, Xuanzang, um, and to his students, um, but they chant it in Japanese pronunciation. I don't know if you guys have. We haven't really dealt with that yet, but. Um... Basically, because of the closeness of the writing systems of Japanese language over over the course of East Asian history, um, in Buddhism, sometimes you'll find that uh, Japanese language obviously has its own has its own syllabary and its own pronunciation and its own vocabulary, which is sometimes close closely related to Chinese, but sometimes not. Um, and so, the same characters will be read several different ways. Um, because there's a Japanese way to say it and a Chinese way to say it in Japanese syllables. And that being said, whenever you chant or recite uh, a Chinese text using Japanese pronunciation, you're not making language. It doesn't sound like anything. A regular person walking down the street in Japan hearing this would not, unless they knew what that was going on, they wouldn't be able to like parse out sentences and grammar and meaning and such. Um, They're really just kind of doing chants they saw in China using the Japanese syllabary. So it's a little bit kind of mutually unintelligible, but um, the reason that it happens is because they're trying to maintain faith towards the characters and the text and the originality of it. And because, um, well, there's esoteric reasons as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, you want to maintain like the, the sound and somaticity of whatever it is you're chanting or reciting for for some important reasons. Yeah. So the funny I don't think the episode is I was going to say I don't think the episode has gone up yet, but we have had recorded an episode that goes into that kind of into the word speech ideas. language thing. Yeah, yeah. We, we did um we did a karma of words episode. Good. That's a I think that's a great topic. Yeah, it'll be up eventually. 
So what's funny about about this though, and, and with the Hoso, is that uh, the things that they're chanting are these these shastras. They're chanting these these philosophical treatises, not sutras. Yeah, not sutras. Uh, and I, I imagine they do chant sutras, but of course, it's it's just a little bit you know strange. That, you know, um, I, maybe at some point this started as a as a means to remember things. I'm not quite sure because I'm not I'm not a Japanese specialist, but um, I always found that a little bit funny that they're chanting something like the Chung Wei Shui. Well, it's interesting about whether or not it's to be remembered because um, as we talked about before, you and I outside of the podcast and me a little bit in the podcast, um, the arrival of Indian texts to different places in East Asia doesn't come with any sort of systematized hierarchy and it doesn't come with instructions or a table of contents or any sort of codex for organizing hierarchically the teaching or separating out what is sutra and what is not. And I mean, you know that something is a sutra because it's called a sutra, but essentially like what is Buddha Vachana or the words of the Buddha himself or not versus what is like meant to be a commentary. There's a lot of confusion and a lot of um, debate and a lot of interpretation that goes on as these texts travel. And so um they very well could be chanting it in the spirit of chanting a sutra. Um, we'd have to ask someone of the Hosto school who does that. They very well could be doing that. Um, but additionally, the oral tradition aspect of Buddhism in Japan, it's so hard to understand and diagnose because we just don't have a lot of... We have some chanting and reciting practices, but they're almost always um, going together with copying, with, yeah. with uh, copying sutras. And stuff like that. So in that regard, whether this was meant to preserve the text outside of the written word, it's really, really hard to say. I'm inclined to think that it was um, in favor of, in the spirit of doing it like a sutra, because mm -hmm. you'll find evidence that the that the um, the characters in the text, the authors or the people that are referred to in the text, they are regarded as bodhisattvas. They're regarded as yeah. worthy of respect and worship and and so on. And so um, that being the case, they think that they're chanting the words of someone on level with Maitreya, yeah. someone on level with Kanon and et cetera. So I think that that, um, I think that that is influencing uh, what they are, why they're chanting and how they're chanting, mm -hmm. even if they're not chanting sutras. Yeah, definitely. It might have some spiritual fruit. It might actually give you insight into the Vijnana or Vijnapti, maybe. And it just seems weird to us because we wouldn't sit around chanting like Kant or Hegel yeah. or Kierkegaard <laughs> or anything like that. People would think like, wow, you're insane if you're doing that. <laughs> but that's kind of in a way, in a similar way, that's what they're doing. They're not chanting the Lord's Prayer. They're, they're chanting they're chanting like these philosophers yeah. who are writing about the and, Lord's Prayer. And also just to, to temper that too, I... I, I think i present Yogacara in a very philosophical way right but these are all vasubandhu is a, a bodhisattva and these yeah. this is a religious tradition so i don't want to get any wrong impressions definitely still a religion like the rest of, of buddhism um just some very i think some very fascinating philosophical ideas at the heart of the Yogacara. absolutely i agree agreed so that's all i have prepared uh for you guys is there any other questions you guys have or we don't have any more questions prepared. Do you have any questions, Docs? I have one question mainly about the term Yogacara. Yeah. Uh, so what what is the meaning behind Yogacara? Like I note the word yoga there, and I'm that immediately 
puts me into Hinduism mindset, but I'm not sure if that's the correct root word. Uh, yeah, where does the word derive from? Yeah. I'd love to hear your take on that because I give a short take on that in the introductory episode coming up. So oh, you do? So go and I want to hear yours actually because I want to know if it's different. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, I uh, Yogacara, is, it's actually the way of, of yoga, which is, is very funny. Um, it's not Yogavada. I can't, I'm trying to remember what the Chara is. Chara actually just means to practice. Yeah, to practice yoga. Um, so, or like those who practice, like the yoga charans are those who practice yoga. Yeah. Yeah. So I, this might be the exact same. It's, uh, it's the practice school. And and in some sense, um, well, the question here is like, what, what is your understanding of the word yoga? Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I was, I was reading the Sendin or Mochana Sutra. Um, it's that same chapter I brought up before the Maitreya Sutra. Um, I think in some sense, maybe that's kind of like the height of that. Uh, text, but there's a verse in it um, which says about kind of laying words aside um, and laying dispute aside to practice yoga. Um, so they, it seems from the outside, the Yogacara doesn't do a lot of practice. Um, and just to say yoga, yeah, I think you're, you're totally correct to identify it um, with Orthodox Hinduism, um, especially kind of later post-Upanishadic Bhagavad Gita developments where um, you have the ways of yoga. Yoga, it's cognate with yoke, right? So what it means is to spiritually yoke yourself to something. So in hmm. this case, you're doing samadhi and vipassana and learning the doctrines and living a, a Buddhistic life to, to yoke yourself to the Buddha Dharma. They view themselves, or at least the early strata views themselves as we're the school that actually practices and we're the school that puts aside words, which is very funny because they're pretty debative and argumentative. They're pretty debative, argumentative, and they have a super highly refined kind of philosophical <laughs> system. Um, but I will say they do have a way to tell you, you do this practice and you do it like this and, you know, we define it in this term. So, yeah, that's pretty much the same as, as I understand it, this yoking, um, yoga, whenever it gets translated um, into Chinese and into Japanese as Buddhism travels, um, and I'm speaking specifically about Buddhism traveling, not Hinduism, not other things traveling. Yoga often gets rendered as um, Tao or Do. Um, Tao is the um, Chinese reading of it. And Do is the Japanese. Another reading in Japanese is Michi. And um, these are often thought of as yeah, spiritual pursuits. It's a long practice. It's something, it's like practicing practice, essentially. It's something that you commit your life to um, for spiritual reasons, even if the thing you're committing to is not spiritual. So it's important to note that um, yoga doesn't have an inherently Hindu, inherently Buddhist connotation. For example, it's kind of like Prayer doesn't necessarily mean Christian prayer or Muslim prayer or Jewish prayer. Um, this doesn't have like a specific connotation, at least in my view. I'm sure that there's lots of Hindu and Buddhist philosophers from thousands of years ago who would disagree with me. <laughs> but um, I think that it's definitely just like it's, it's a reflection of commitment and it's a reflection of pursuit um, of like a very long term gradual goal that requires a lot of practice. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Uh, that was the only question I had left remaining. So, yeah, this has been great. 
Thank you. Thanks Thank for you for coming on. on. Yeah. Yeah. I really, I don't sure. get to talk to um, willing victims about the Terror. <laughs> so I appreciate Yeah, that's my on. entire role in this podcast is to be the willing victim. <laughs> so yeah, I'm in. He's definitely the willing victim for all of it, for sure. <laughs> all right. Well, I think I'll do the outro then if you guys are ready. Yep. Yes. Yes, let's go. Thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you, Turner, for coming on. Um, this has been our very first guest appearance episode discussing Chinese Yogacara Buddhism. I hope you've enjoyed. And um, if you have any questions about Yogacara Buddhism, uh, please make sure to leave those with us. And um, we'll pass them along and try and try and answer them and try and discuss them with you. Um, we'll see you next time for another guest appearance soon in the future. Stay tuned. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you very much. My name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions and the voice of Hearer. And I'm Docs, editor, question asker, and voice of Hermit. And this has been Bright on Buddhism. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, or if you have a question you'd like us to discuss, we'd love to hear from you. Please consider leaving a comment or review, subscribing, or joining us on social media. Email us at bright.on.buddhism at gmail.com. Tweet us at brightbuddhism. And join us on our Discord server, The Hidden Sangha, link in description. As always, citations and resources for this episode can be found in the show notes. Thank you. See you next time. Thank you very much.